1: We are going to see at least one, if not four, prosecutions of a former president and what it means for our country and what it means in terms of the rule of law.
0: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law. And I am Dahlia Lithwick. I cover those things for Slate. And we find ourselves taping the show this week in a strange liminal space wherein we are holding our collective breath, awaiting a ruling on a national injunction for the first pill in the medication abortion protocol. We're awaiting an indictment of former President Donald Trump from the Manhattan DA. We are awaiting news from Fonnie Willis about a Trump indictment, possibly in Georgia, and awaiting yet more rock'em-sock'em news from Jack Smith's investigation into stolen documents at Mar-a-Lago. An optimist might suggest that the walls really are closing in on the former president, but you know me too well for that. So perhaps we can take this past week, much of it devoted to rank speculation about what Alvin Bragg is up to and why, to ask ourselves two questions. Why did so much of the media spend six straight days watching security barricades being erected around the Manhattan DA's office? And what did we miss while we were so doing? NYU's Andrew Weissman will join us to figure it all out. Later on in the show, Slate Plus members will get to hear my conversation with Mark Joseph Stern addressing some of the issues we couldn't get to in the main show, including abortion in Oklahoma, Trump judges crashing the economy, and much more. Slate Plus members get access to bonus content like my conversations with Mark, ad-free versions of all Slate podcasts. And enjoy unlimited articles at Slate.com, and Slate Plus members support the journalism we do here at the magazine, and for that we are immensely and eternally grateful. If you'd like to join us, you can go to Slate.com amicusplus Amicus Plus, that's Slate.com slash Amicus Plus. But first, let's just savor the irony. Last show, we were given a bracing reminder that the media should stop following Donald Trump around and emptying his ashtrays and putting mints on his pillows. That was meant to be the lesson of the 22 midterms as well. And yet, this week for the show, the spotlight is back again on Donald Trump, the reality show president whose twin skill sets appear to be mastery of the attention economy and running out the clock on legal accountability. That's because after years and years of waiting for the shoe to drop, from the Mueller report to two impeachments to the January 6th hearing, the skies above us appear to be heavy with dropping shoes, and yet, oh Boy, we have wasted a good deal of energy this past week treating all of this like March Madness, handicapping which indictments are the best, and trading our Fonnie Willis, Alvin Bragg, and Jack Smith MVP cards, and generally just milling about, watching the sky, and complaining. So we wanted to put all of this in some larger context, what matters, what doesn't, what's happening. How to think about it. And there is simply nobody better for that task than Andrew Weissman, who served as a lead prosecutor for Robert Mueller's special counsel's office and led the Department of Justice's fraud section. Andrew Weissman has one of those galactic brains that can hold all of the current mayhem and light us through the maze. His New York Times op ed this past week, co authored with Ryan Goodman was a reminder to take seriously the investigation into crimes associated with Donald Trump's alleged hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. It's neither a trivial matter nor a selective prosecution, he writes. Weissman is a professor of practice with the NYU Center on the Administration of Criminal Law. Before his work on the Mueller probe and heading up the fraud section of DOJ, he served as the general counsel for the FBI and as a federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of New York, where he prosecuted numerous members of the Colombo, Gambino, and Genovese families. His book, Where Law Ends, was published in 2021 and was a New York Times bestseller. And like many of you, I am hoping that its title is not a description of our subject matter today. That was a huge windup. But Andrew, welcome to Amicus.
1: Thank you so much for having me. With that introduction there, it's like a high bar to, to, meet, to, <laughs> to meet your expectations.
0: Well, to both meet my expectations and explain to me why we are not at the place where law ends, which if we are, just tell me. (laughs) If this is all for nothing, I need you to tell me now and we could just call it. But I think it's not uh, the end of law. So I've been trying really hard to think about the most useful frame for this set of like really complicated, nested prosecutions that are all seeming to kind of flower at once. It, It feels like it's become a bit of a three-ring circus and maybe too much of a spectator sport. And I, I guess I feel like on the one hand, so much of the last week's events were just cooked up in Donald Trump's writer's room, right? The the warning that an indictment was coming Tuesday, it didn't. And these increasingly dangerous threats from the former president against Alvin Bragg, including, you know, Thursday's threats about Soros-backed animals and, you know warnings now of death and destruction so i'm trying to thread this needle about allowing the person who is really good at framing the narrative to frame the narrative but like taking seriously what he's doing
1: yeah maybe i can tell you sort of how i navigate this because i think on the one hand it is very easy to, and actually important to, and people are interested in sort of the daily, um, day-to-day, nitty-gritty in terms of what is happening in any particular case and what it could mean. How is a judge ruling? What is a new piece of evidence? And so you do end up with this very sort of Narrow focus on what does it mean that the judge ruled this way with respect to Mr. Corcoran and the Mar a Lago sort of obstruction of justice aspect. So you get very sort of micro. And I absolutely have to stay on top of that. And having been in in sort of high profile investigations, I find it fascinating. But I think it's also important to zoom way out to the idea that two things are about to happen that we are going to see at least one, if not four, prosecutions of a former president and what it means for our country and what it means in terms of the rule of law and selective prosecution and a lot of big issues that other countries have faced and confronted. But we have not. And, you know, because we're Americans, we're so not used to looking to other countries as examples. You know, We're not like in Europe where we've been invaded and there are many, many countries very close by that we constantly are going to. And it's just sort of an American phenomenon that we generally don't look at ourselves as sort of part of the rest of the world. But it's a useful thing to do because so many countries have dealt with this issue. So so so-called first world countries. Um, and then the second way I sort of think about it is that we're very soon going to be in a educational mode where people are going to be, I think, somewhat disappointed. The people who are looking to see legal accountability on the criminal side for with respect to Donald Trump are going to be saying, wait a second, why isn't there a trial? Why isn't he found guilty? And there's going to be an enormous amount of time where the criminal justice system affords Any defendant, whether you like the person or not, an enormous amount of time to prepare and make motions and to have a meaningful, real defense. And you will hear that from a lot of former prosecutors, including myself, about that importance and needing to educate people about what to expect and why that is part of the rule of law. That you have to be willing to be patient and wait for all of that, even though you will be thinking, you've got to be kidding. It took so long to get to the indictment phase. Now you're telling me it's going to take so long to get to the trial phase. Um, But that is where we're going to be, I think, very soon.
0: So what you're kind of saying, Andrew, is this is kind of the what to expect when you're expecting an indictment episode, right? Where it's like, it can be months of really like boring process and that we hyper focus on the perp walk and the fingerprinting. And then we want, you know, the dun dun, you know, like the episode has to end with Donald Trump in prison. And what you're saying is part of the work here is... Interfering with that expectation because otherwise everybody's going to be grumpy, even grumpier going forward than they have been for the last four years.
1: Exactly. One uh, data point that might be useful is in the state courts in New York, when the Manhattan District Attorney indicted two Trump organizations and Alan Weisselberg, the former chief financial officer of those organizations. It took 16 months between the time from indictment to the time of the start of the trial for that to happen. So that, and that's, that's not unusual. Let's give you another data point in the special counsel investigation. It took just less than a year in the DC courthouse between the time that Paul Manafort was indicted and we went to trial and I remember thinking that we were very lucky that that was a relatively short time frame. We did a lot to make that happen. In other words, we turned over discovery immediately. We responded to everything. We were sort of very, very responsive because we wanted to make sure we could have a trial date that was sooner rather than later for a whole variety of reasons, including trying to flip Paul Manafort. But that's just to give people a sense of time frames.
0: So then I'm going to jump to the worrisome doomsday clock above us, because if I'm correct in what I said at the beginning, which is his one superpower is hiring lawyers who can run out the clock, we really do have a very compressed time frame before the general election starts. And we're seeing all sorts of desperate Hail Marys. I want to talk about the attacks on Fonnie Willis. But I, I do think he's exceptionally good at making it seem as though there is no way any of these processes can happen in time. Tell me why I'm wrong.
1: Well, I do think that with respect to the federal potential charges, I have always been saying what you've been saying, Dahlia, which is keep your eye on the clock. And we can probably have a longer discussion about whether you and I agree whether DOJ has been as responsive as they should have been. Um, just preview <laughs> is, I don't think they have. Um, and there's a and the downside is that if there were to be charges at the federal level, even in a few months, there is a real clock here. Even if there were to be charges in the next few months, the problem is is that if there is a Republican president, those charges can be done away within a second. The president has complete control over the executive branch and the Department of Justice to say, don't go forward. A pardon could be issued if it's not Trump at a DeSantis or Haley regime. They get to pardon whoever they want. That's the federal level. And that's why the delay could be costly. And you can be sure upon an indictment of Donald Trump at the federal level, every Republican candidate is going to be asked whether they would pardon Donald Trump during the primary season. And you can be sure the answer is going to be yes. None of that applies at the state level. So one reason to keep your eye on New York and Georgia, and particularly New York, is because if there are indictments and there's a conviction, they stick. There is no ability to have a federal pardon for a state charge. There is some legislation going on in Georgia to try and interfere with Funny Willis and basically be able to remove her. That is not going on in New York, and that's not going to be going on in New York anytime soon. Which is one reason to really keep your eye on the potential New York charges. Which I hate to use this word, but do seem imminent because you know that's the adjective that Funny Willis used, which apparently is in January. <laughs> yes, which is apparently is is a malleable phrase.
0: But I am correct. Andrew, that Fonnie Willis pumped the brakes even on the Georgia investigation for the midterms, right? So there is some acculturated sense that it becomes inappropriate, even at the state level, to do this around elections. So you're, I think you're right in terms of formal pardons. But I do think that there's going to be already we're seeing, right, the pushback to Alvin Bragg is, oh, it's election season, he's going to Waco. So there's a weird way in which even the state actors are being told, it's too late, he's already in the race.
1: Yeah, I don't think that's going to work. I mean, I i mean, this is not you don't get to have a system where um, as long as you're running for president, you can't be charged because then you can be pretty sure just to re- make a reference to my former organized crime work. I mean, you haven't into- everyone in the Gambino family would be running for president. So, I mean, that just isn't the case. There is a DOJ policy about not taking an overt act in an, a political case In certain circumstances, within 60 to 90 days of the actual election, we are a long way from that. So again, I think that to me, the biggest thing I think about is this idea of a pardon at the federal level. And that's one of the reasons, for instance, in Georgia, much of what's happening in Georgia is really a subset of what I see as the large January 6th case that Jack Smith could bring, but I'm sort of happy that there is that subset because if those are real charges and there's enough proof, that can stick, whereas the federal case may not be able to.
0: We are taking a break to hear some words from our sponsors. Let's return to my conversation with Andrew Weissman on shoes dropping and waiting. So let's talk for a minute about the Manhattan DA's investigation into alleged hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and the you know financial misrepresentations around that. Uh, it's been roundly criticized for the last couple of weeks by Trump enthusiasts and opponents alike. In some cases, the enthusiasts are saying all the stuff that you've already said, you know, it's selective prosecution and it's a witch hunt. But even folks who really believe in accountability have been apt to dismiss it as either, you know, it's small ball, it's too late, it's unprovable, there's like state and federal jurisdictional problems, there's statutes of limitation problems. Do you mind just walking us through, to the extent you know it, what's likely to be charged and why, and this goes back to the piece you wrote with Ryan, why this is actually quite a serious possible act that it's not, you know, just because it involves Stormy Daniels and it doesn't feel like it's January 6th. This is not a trivial prosecution.
1: Sure. Um, Maybe I could do that last part first and then um, which is the way that I look at this and I think the way prosecutors in Manhattan and in Georgia and at the federal government will look at this is not comparing the possible crimes that Donald Trump committed to each other. In other words, there's no question that the January 6 events, the, meaning the entire conspiracy to thwart the peaceful transfer of power and overthrow the will of the people, is obviously the most important. Of the set of crimes. And then you know, second, I would say it's the Mar-a-Lago case, having highly classified documents and obstructing a national security investigation. I personally would put that as number two, and I would put Manhattan as number three. And if it was one prosecutor doing all of these investigations with complete control about how to sequence them, you may not start with Manhattan. But it isn't one prosecutor, it's three. And life is messy, and you have to go with the facts and the laws as they develop. And all of this may become a footnote to history if we end up with all four prosecutions going forward or some lesser number where the happenstance that Manhattan went first will just be a happenstance. I do think there is a serious question about making sure that we are a country that follows the rule of law and doesn't engage in selective prosecution. A really good example, just to get you in the weeds, of selective prosecution would be in Ukraine during the time of Paul Manafort when President Yanukovych basically prosecuted his political rival, Yulia Tymoshenko. Was she guilty of that charge? I think yes. The problem was is that everybody was committing the same crime. It wasn't the crime of the century, but it it was a crime. But everybody was doing it. And so it was clearly she was singled out to bring that case. Nobody had ever been prosecuted for it. And there was a reason that that was happening. You don't want to end up in a country like that. And of course, you know, (laughs) it's ironic because, you know, in many ways, the Trump administration emulated the worst parts of that Ukraine regime. So one of the ways that you deal with that is you make sure that there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt and that the crime that is being charged is one that other people have been charged with in comparable circumstances or less egregious circumstances. Now, obviously, in the Mar-a-Lago case or the January 6th case, those are easy things to recognize. I mean, just take January 6th. I mean, hundreds of people who are far less culpable than the leader have been prosecuted. So this becomes a non-issue. So the idea that we are going to somehow become a banana republic if we charge the leader of a conspiracy when we've charged the foot soldiers is absurd. And of course, I just a footnote, Jack Smith, having been in the International Criminal Court, has dealt with this issue repeatedly and is very aware that the rule of law requires this. Now, The issue of in Manhattan is that the charge that people think will be at least the initial charges, because there is some thought that they're still going to look at the financial case against Donald Trump, is connected to these hush money payments, and it is filing a false business record with an intent to defraud. That is routinely charged in New York, and the New York Times is Looked at that. Just Security, which is a legal blog that is co run by Ryan Goodman, my co author, fantastic professor, incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly thoughtful professor at NYU. Looking at this issue to see whether this is routinely charged. Is there something unusual about it? And the answer is no and looked at the types of cases, and the cases are brought in, they're relatively trivial at times. So the idea that Donald Trump, because of his former position, is going to get a pass, it seems anathema to the rule of law. But here's the complication. That crime of filing a false business record is a misdemeanor. There's nothing wrong with charging a misdemeanor. It's charged in New York. That's fine. I mean, he should, the rule of law, if that's what the rule of law um, requires. That's what the rule of law, that's what you get. Some people may be saying, oh, it should be a felony. Well, that's that particular charge is a misdemeanor. And that is a clean charge, meaning there's no complication to it. Obviously, you have to have the proof. It can be charged as a felony. And it can be charged as a felony if you are doing that crime with the intent to further or cover up any other crime. It is not clear whether if the any other crime includes a federal charge versus a state charge that's one complication and the other is a lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking and writing about what could that other charge be could it be a tax offense could it be a campaign finance offense All of those other charges have complications and that's where you know I used to say when I was in the government, you know what the criminal law is not for? Gray. It's not for gray. It's not a place to experiment with the law or push the law in a way that is not clear. That is what civil law might be for, but that's not what criminal law is for. And I used to always be told that also by the Solicitor General's office because they were the ones who had to deal with this on appeal. (laughs) They were like, courts don't like that. And kind of rightly, because the whole point of criminal law is you should have notice as to what is criminal and what isn't. So that's the complication. I really rather not speculate about... There are all sorts of things that the DA may do, but I think that's what everyone's sort of waiting to see is how they deal with that issue, if at all, because they may decide not to charge a felony. They may decide that it's appropriate just to have a misdemeanor.
0: So one of the things you said... With which I concur, by the way, is that so much of this would be slightly ameliorated had the DOJ acted a little more quickly under Merrick Garland. And I think one of the things that I read, again, beneath your op-ed with Ryan Goodman and and, and in some of the things you're saying and that you've said elsewhere is that in some sense, you know, Alvin Bragg's office has to do cleanup, right? They have to work around the failures of the Justice Department. They have to work around the actual obstruction of the Bill Barr (laughs) Justice Department. I mean, at every turn, had things gone perfectly kind of at the first round, you wouldn't get the detritus of what didn't go well to work with. And I think maybe that's A useful frame for sort of explaining what it is that you're explaining, which is the Manhattan DA's office is juggling, you know, the the Trump corporate stuff, the Weisselberg stuff, tax stuff, you know, Tish James. There's so many moving pieces. And so I think what you've been saying here is the perfect is the enemy of the good here. And that in some sense you kind of have to dance with the, the case that brung you. You know, like all you can do is cobble something together from what's left behind when the process fails earlier, right? Is that some version of what you're saying? Yeah,
1: I think that's right with the understanding that sometimes you'll look at the situation you're in and say, "I can't, there's nothing to do here, or it's not right to do it. And in that sense, one thing I do think that Alvin Bragg deserves real credit for it's, I don't want to get on my soapbox, but I do sort of feel for him is when he took over as DA, the two lead people who are on the case basically went into his, in his office and gave him what I thought was just an incredibly inappropriate ultimatum of you're going to greenlight an indictment now or we're quitting. And to quote Mark Pomerantz from his book, he said, you know, wouldn't it be bad if the public knew that you said no and and that would become very public and it wouldn't be very good for you or the office? And sure enough, that's exactly what happened because Mark Pomerantz left and he leaked his, he's now admitted he leaked his resignation letter to the New York Times. Well, Alvin Brack deserves some credit for saying this case is not ready and he took a huge drubbing in the press. I was one of the people who was thinking, God, when he says the case is still ongoing, I wonder if that's really true and whether he's really investigating or whether he just means that the Trump organization trials going on. Well, you know, especially now when he's being attacked as being political and doing things just for political reasons, it's worth remembering that here's a guy who actually, I think made an evaluation that it wasn't ready. Whether you agree or disagree, he was willing to take the heat and do what he thought was right as a prosecutor, not an elected official. He was saying, it's not ready. I'm not going to go forward. Um, And, you know, it's just worth remembering that, especially when he's getting attacked now, that this is a guy with clearly a lot of backbone.
0: I'm Loathe to ask the next question, because I think I've set up this entire conversation as like, please stop amplifying what Donald Trump (laughs) says. Um, But I do have to amplify Donald Trump for one little minute, and then we'll turn to Jack Smith. But what do we do about I don't even I'm not actually going to repeat the threats that he's making on Truth Social. And I have no interest in, again, amplifying just patently false narratives about when the indictment's coming and what's going to happen. But I do want to ask the knock-on question, which is, what do you do, Andrew, when you've got like Jim Jordan jumping in and Mike Pence jumping in? I mean, everybody had the ability to sit around and wait till there was an indictment before screaming, you know, about selective prosecutions and witch hunts. In other words, this is just another version of It's bigger than Donald Trump because there's an entire machine behind him that wants to participate in the denialism and the kind of, I'm going to say, stochastic terrorism. We can fight about whether they're actually calling for Mobs to come riot, but I, I I am really curious what you think about the House getting in on the action and Republican contenders for the Crown getting in on the action, and the sort of overt calls not just for public protest whatever, but overt calls that this is lawless in the face of an attempt to reinstate the rule of law
1: well um. To state the obvious, it's unbelievably depressing. <laughs> um, but but Dahlia, remember that a lot of these people, actually, when it came time to take a vote on whether to count all the electoral votes on January 6th, it's not like there were just a few people. I think it was about 100 people were willing to do something that the law did not permit. And these people were elected officials. Yep with a duty to the public. Having been a public servant, I cannot tell you how demoralizing and upsetting it is when people do not obey their oath of office. And there's something sort of heartbreaking about Mike Pence because you have somebody who was willing to do the right thing and to understand his obligation as a citizen to do the right thing and to follow the will of the people. And now to see him prevaricate on that, I mean, to me, he squandered a place in history that he could have been proud of. And on the other hand, the DA's letter responding to Jim Jordan and his colleagues was unbelievably well-written and thought through to the one thing that if anyone here wants to get into the weeds, it's really worth reading. It was turned around so quickly. It makes you think that these people have thought through this issue, had prepared something like this, and so well-reasoned and written that it really gave me confidence, one, these are top-notch people. I mean, I read that letter and thought, if this had come out of the special counsel's legal team with Michael Dreven leading it, I would have been just as proud of it. And two, there was no sense from reading that letter that they're thinking of not indicting. In other words, the letter to me read as not sort of like why are we having this debate because there may not even be something to fight about. It was very much stand back, not your jurisdiction. They said it with a lot better (laughs) words than that. Um, Just a final point. A lot of people like me say, oh, if you're doing a case that's high profile in the public eye, people just keep their head down and it's just the facts and the law and has no effect. That's not really right. There are all sorts of ways that you have to deal with it. And one of them is writing this kind of letter and being prepared to deal with Congress and how Congress could interfere with what you're doing. And so you're just fighting on so many more fronts And have to be so much more aware of how Congress and the public eye could affect your case.
0: Can you talk for a minute about the thing that probably should have gotten as much attention as the fencing in Manhattan, and that is the sort of rocketing around in the D.C. federal courts of this motion to sort of pierce the attorney-client privilege? You mentioned Evan Corcoran and Donald Trump. This is a, honking deal. I think that folks don't fully understand both the enormity of what happened and the speed with which it happened is quite remarkable.
1: Yeah. So this is a huge development because Mr. Corcoran was the person who drafted the June certification saying that all documents responsive to a subpoena have been turned over. Everyone knows that, in fact, was false because The search was done shortly thereafter. Lots of documents were found that were responsive. And so the government wants to know who gave that information to Mr. Corcoran when he said a diligent search was done and everything's been turned over. Where did that information come from? The reporting is that he would say, hey, that was a mistake on my part because I was relying on what my client said, the client being the former president. So Mr. Corcoran is supposed to go into the grand jury uh, again by reports yesterday because he's been ordered to testify about who gave him that information. I have litigated this exact issue before the exact same judge ruled on it, Judge Howell, because this issue came up in the Manafort case because he and Rick Gates submitted two letters to the Department of Justice. They had numerous false statements in them. And we wanted to know from the lawyer not sort of tell me about all your legal conversations with your client, but just who gave you the specific information that's in the letter. And we made a motion. And by the way, one of the lawyers on our team is now the Solicitor General of the United States. So there's definitely some continuity, Elizabeth Priliger. And we made a motion that said two things. One, this isn't even covered by the attorney-client privilege. The attorney-client privilege is for seeking legal advice. When a client is seeking legal advice and you have those discussions, this wasn't seeking legal advice. This was giving factual information to a lawyer to convey to the Department of Justice. All we want to know is where did the information come from? And the judge agreed it is not covered by attorney client privilege. Sorry to get you in the weeds. Now you are it's like you're at NYU Law no, School. No, I'm loving you. this. I'm
0: like having um, flashbacks to law school. Keep going.
1: And the second part was, even if you think that it is attorney-client, privileged information, crime fraud exception. And the judge said that she found that we had shown that it was, quote, likely, unquote, that a crime had been committed. It is not necessary for crime fraud that the lawyer is involved. The lawyer could be involved, but that's not a requirement. It is a requirement that the client is doing something that is likely criminal, but using his lawyer as a conduit. So um, I am, we don't know exactly what Beryl Howell did in this case, but there's very little reason to think she didn't just, you know, it's. I won't say copy and paste, but in terms of her legal reasoning, it's exactly the same situation. And so Mr. Corcoran has to go in and to the grand jury and give this information. I have to tell you, when we had this situation, once the lawyer told us this information came from Paul Manafort, it was game over in terms of an obstruction of justice and false statement charge. If you submit a false statement in a letter to the Department of Justice, that is a crime. If you submit a false statement to the Department of Justice in an ongoing investigation where you're intending to affect that investigation, that is a crime. And if they have Mr. Corcoran doing that, and he may even have contemporaneous notes, as good lawyers do, particularly good lawyers who are dealing with a client like the former president, where people take notes because they want to be protective of themselves. C.E.G. Don McGahn, um, as to why he took notes when he was White House counsel, which, by the way, is very unusual. This could be really, really devastating evidence.
0: Let's take a quick break. More now from Andrew Weissman of NYU. I just want to follow up on one thing. I I, I was noting Marcy Wheeler was tweeting about 31 former Trump attorneys, or as she calls some of them fixers with a JD, are witnesses or the subject of Trump investigations. She thinks 31 is too small a number. I, I just wonder if, like, just tying it back to Michael Cohen and Evan Corcoran, there's something so... At one level, it's always the lawyers because the lawyers are the wizards in, you know, constitutional democracy. But there's something so complicated about these relationships with Donald Trump and his attorneys where he tells them to lie and he tells them to cook the books and he does all this stuff. And then they find themselves, as you said, it's part of the reason for the scrupulous note taking, either being thrown under the bus or having to throw him under the bus. And it just feels like such a through line in so many of these cases. D-
1: Don McGann. Um, as an example where Don McGann was like, essentially, I'm not going to jail for you. I agree with your policies. Um, I'm, I'm not writing something and that is false. The thing that's unusual about this is that, um, usually lawyers and accountants are part of the infrastructure that keep people within the lanes, the legal lanes of what they are supposed to be doing. And. Usually, if you've got a case like Enron, a lawyer or an accountant is useful to say, oh, yes, I knew about everything, and maybe I made a mistake, but I told them that they could do this within these parameters. Or they say, no one even told me about those facts. I never would have permitted it. What's unusual is someone coming to a lawyer and saying, will you commit this crime or will you do something that I'm not going to tell you what the actual facts are, but I'm going to lie to you so that you commit a crime on unwittingly. That, I totally agree, is a Trump M.O. And you just see it repeatedly. Many people say if you start out thinking Roy Cohn is your model for as he said it was when he was talking to Don McGann when he was saying, Why well, are you taking notes? Roy Cohn didn't take notes, you know, which you'd be tempted to say, and that's why I do. But if you have that as your model, you know, it's not surprising we're in this situation where I really can see in these cases that a whole host of lawyers may be key witnesses.
0: I want to ask one last question before I let you go, Andrew, and that is, you know, we've talked a little bit about what's going on in Georgia and Fonnie Willis. And as we all watched this week, there was an attempt by Trump's lawyers to suppress the release of her report of, of the special grand jury that's been also like roundly rebuked as silly. But I, I do want to make one slightly depressing point. And it's not actually connected to your joke earlier about, you know, we were told in January that this was imminent, and apparently imminent doesn't mean what we think it means. But I do want to make a sort of substantive point and have you respond. Um, Sherlyn Eiffel has a really depressing piece in Slate that just went up uh, about the efforts around the country. You mentioned this as well to take away powers from prosecutors, as Georgia is trying to do with Fonnie Willis to create a commission that would be able to remove her. And that this is a pattern that's repeating around the country. Uh, Donald Trump does it through threats of mobs, but we're watching legislatures destabilize (laughs) the power and authority of prosecutors all around the country. And it's a structural question, but. It seems like it is a theme that we're seeing. And it's obviously a shot across the bow to our ideas about how the law works. But it reminds me actually that a lot of these folks we're talking about are elected. And that when we kind of do the popcorn emoji, let's just watch them bring down the hammer. We sort of forget that they answer to us, which is, I think, some of what you were saying about Alvin Bragg, but also that we can bolster them, (laughs) that we have to bolster them, and that these are not people who have job security. These are people who can be kneecapped by a legislature and that we have kind of skin in this game as people who vote.
1: So, I think one of the the, um, truths that we learned from the Trump administration is that what I viewed as moorings that were just rock solid and would not, were fundamental to my idea of what it meant to be American and in America, were not just policies as opposed to laws, but that all of it, even including the Constitution, which can be amended. All of it is not something that you can take for granted, that all of it can change and all of it can go away. And the rule of law can be undermined. You know, as you're seeing, what I see now is this sort of non-fact-based world is having to confront a a place with, to quote Amy Bourbon Jackson, the D.C. district judge, this is a place, she said about the court, where facts and law matter. But all of that can change. The attack on the fourth estate can happen, where it can be easier to sue, easier to control them. All of that can change. And so, I mean, it sounds Pollyannish, but it really is up to voters and people having the fortitude and the will and the backbone and the moxie and interest to do something and to you know, get out the vote and to be vocal and to show what they care about.
0: I love that. And I'm just going to bask in the glory of what to expect when you're expecting an indictment, Andrew, because I think it's just a really good way to think about what's coming forward, which is, you know, this just isn't the writer's room. This is... As I've been joking for a long time, just as there is a slow food movement, there is a slow justice movement. This is just not going to happen in ways that are sort of viscerally satisfying, but it's also participatory in every single way. And I love that you're telling us, uh, watch what's really happening and don't get too hyper-focused on what sort of clicky thing is being told to you is happening, yeah? Yeah,
1: yeah. Dahlia, thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Oh, it was just such a treat to have you. And um, if to the extent that I you think I overpromised on your great big brain. Uh, I may have underpromised. <laughs> Andrew Weissman served as lead prosecutor for Robert Mueller's special counsel's office, led the Department of Justice's fraud section, and is a professor of practice with the NYU Center on the Administration of Criminal Law. His book, Where Law Ends, was published in 2021 and was a New York Times bestseller. Thank you so, so much for your time today.
1: My absolute pleasure.
0: And that's a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in and thank you so very much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Podcasts at Slate and Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We will be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. And until then, take good care.